0: Here we learn that Hagendaz is from the Bronx. (laughs) So it's more like Hagendaz. And I'm, oh boy, it's a rough one today. Shouldn't try a Bronx accent. everybody. This is Paul Ford. I'm the co-founder of Postlight, a digital product studio at 101 Fifth Avenue in New York City. And my guest today is Rex Sorgatz. And as an interviewer, I'm flying solo. All my regular collaborators are out busy with clients, which I can't really complain about because that helps us grow our business. So it's just me today, me and Rex. So Rex, we've talked to you before, but we should catch people up. So you are a Media and internet person. I'll take, I'll take that. Uh, you know, you're, you're a little tough to quantify. I mean, because you're part media strategist, mm-hmm. you're an entrepreneur, but you're also sort of right now, it seems that you're focusing on writing.
1: Yeah. The last couple of years, I've decided that uh, I really want to take on a big project, that this would be my new startup, in a sense, mm-hmm. that at least in its kind of scope of occupation of time, that I'm going to focus on one thing. And this is the book a collection of myths and ideas, tactics and strategies that people have deployed through history for misinforming people and hopefully we expose these in the book so that people have a better understanding of how this stuff has worked historically. Let's let's what
0: is misinformation?
1: Well, I use the term in a ridiculously broad sense. The social scientists tend to divide it up into three specific things. Misinformation, disinformation, and a relatively new term, malinformation. Mal. Misinformation is data that is incorrect, effectively. Disinformation is intentionally spreading that information, something that, that is done with bad intent. And mail information, which is relatively new, is really interesting. It's not actually incorrect information. It's information that is correct, but spread with the intent of abuse. And we see some of this with the Russian Facebook stuff that's happening right now, where the Russians have been accused of amplifying messages that are actually probably true but are using it to rile up certain communities and get them angry. You know,
0: this is the critique that people have of Fox News a lot, which is that people on the left will be like, Fox News, it's evil and bad. And then you're like, well, they, but they don't really lie, actually. They just emphasize certain stories. Like if a migrant worker, an illegal immigrant kills somebody, that might be mentioned in, on other news programs. But Fox News, that's an important story. They'll do it 20 times.
1: Yes. So,
0: so Fox would say we're covering the things that people want to hear about. And other people would say that's malinformation. Yes. So what, what got you to write about misinformation? I think you were working on this when we last saw you heard you on the podcast.
1: Yeah, so I came on a couple of, over two years ago, and uh, I talked about a piece I had written about going back to my hometown in North Dakota.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And out of that, that piece did very well, and I got agents calling me and saying, "Do you want to write a book?" And I said, "Why, sure. Not, I don't really want to write that book, but..." I yeah. can probably come up with a proposal.
0: Oh, they wanted like a delicate memoir of your Nebraska years. Yeah. And
1: I might <laughs> I might still do that someday, but sure. I, I didn't want to write that book right then. No. Um, although it would probably have done good in the era of Trump. If Maybe, that would or broken. it
0: could have sold 1,400 copies.
1: Who, who knows? Yeah. Who knows? That's how these things go. So I, I, had, I had kept a document for over a decade that was just lists of ideas of things that I want to write about. Mm-hmm. And you're kind of like me, like you like writing, but you have other things that you're working on all the time. Yeah. And I try to write like one big piece a year. Yeah. So my document looks like hundreds of things added all the time. They're like, oh, I'd love to write about that. I'll never get to it. And I kept this document for so long. And it, it went from a text file to a Google doc to eventually a wonder list. Mm-hmm. And it had literally 800 entries in it. And I looked at that document and said, are there any books in here? Like, which mm-hmm. of these 800 things? And then I decided, I know, is there a commonality here? And I was like, these are all sort of about deception mm-hmm. and trickery and fakery. So the original proposal for the book was the Encyclopedia of Fakery. I wasn't going to write about one of those things. I was going to write about every one of them. Well,
0: and the, the, you have some roots here, too, before you became like an internet media person. Person, you were an editor of Fate magazine. Is oh that wow, you right? remember that? Yeah, yeah, I'm not going to forget that. <laughs> well, you know, it, there's a specific thing from our cohort, which is that you're kind of a, a you were late adolescent in the 90s, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, sort of collegey. That was your yep. time, my time too. There was a, a theme of disinformation, and you you know, the Church of the Subgenius. There was sort of yeah. all. It was in the air, and then it, there was a. A sense of cults and weird male art, and that—that that was the weird and strange undercurrent of American society.
1: Yeah, I mean that that era was fascinating. It was sort of late nineties, early two thousands. I edited this magazine called Fate, which really was a a. It was on the side of the true believers of conspiracies, right? And. A lot of JFK, right? JFK and also Sasquatch. And, uh, it, it, where, where did you come down
0: on Sasquatch, right?
1: <laughs> well, when I was editing, I said, we are not going... I made a dictum that was like, we have certain rules. We are not going to cover the Loch Ness Monster. Right. And then somebody sent in into the slush pile a, a story about Loch Ness that was about Scottish colonialism. And that really it really was a, an attempt to... Voiced an ideology by the English onto the Scots. And I was like, all right, I changed my dictum. Right, We're running that. Right. We're going to go with this. What
0: are you going to do? Um,
1: and uh, so, yeah, that was a fascinating time. And there was so much in pop culture that was going on. The X-Files was going on. But even like that's bu- right, that's Buffy right. the Vampire Slayer and, and hip hop was really obsessed with outer space and, and conspiracies at the time.
0: You still see some of
1: it when people talk about the Illuminati and, and stuff like that. But it's almost like gotten branded and big. It moved out of pop culture onto the internet, which I guess we could say is pop culture now. Right. Um, and, uh, and I think back then it was a playful thing. And now in the age of Infowars, I don't, I don't know what to call it anymore. It's like some other completely different thing.
0: Well, I think back then, too, it was like you'd go, so, you'd go to the laundromat and somebody would have left a chick comics tract about how you were going to hell. And it was a fascinating document. What, what you, whatever you believed, you were just like, "What is this? This little tiny comic book?" And I sent away. I got all the chick comics at one point. I was just like, "I need <laughs> to see all of them." And that is just you participate. It was a it was a part of culture that was sometimes really associated with religion, sometimes associated with believing in aliens, and and it. It was always there and it didn't really get covered. Like, I think it felt very of a piece with hip hop, indie rock. Like, there was a scene to it and you could connect to that scene and kind of get a kick out of it.
1: Yeah, and I think that's still the big question today is how much of Infowars is something that we people are watching because they believe or they get some sort of thrill out of it. Well, I mean,
0: I watch I've watched InfoWars and Alex Jones for entertainment.
1: Yeah, and I and
0: I think that's okay. I think he's I think what he does is pretty evil and damaging personally,
1: but I also get like why you would you could watch that and enjoy it. Yeah, and The problem is we can't see the audience, yeah. And there is kind of a weird arrogance to saying, "Well, I get it, but other people out there don't get it." No, I think
0: that's right. I think they, I think a lot of people want, like they're in on. They might be in on the joke. I think it's just that moment where they go, "Yeah, but you know, (laughs) yeah, maybe maybe Michelle Obama is an alien."
1: (laughs) Yeah, and back in fate, it was like that too. I I, we had a slush pile that came in with all, all of these crazy stories, and you really gotta different tenor of what America might be believing. And I, I think the biggest question is, like, how much of this stuff is play acting and performance? Um, when some, Even when somebody puts onto Facebook a Alex Jones rant, how much are they kind of enjoying embodying the idea? And so another thing I try to explore in the book is um, a, a weird tangent, but um, you remember the Blair Witch Project came out and there was all of this conversation about people being tricked about going into the movie theater, thinking it was a documentary. Right. And there was kind of a moral panic about it. Like, these kids, they're, they're doing this thing, and they're being deceived in some way. Mm-hmm. And I look back, and I go, I don't think anyone actually ever fell for it. Did anyone actually think that? Were they tricked by the website that looked like a documentary website? Well there's an adolescent
0: pleasure in believing, right? Like being 14 and going like, maybe if, right? Where you haven't fully formed all of the connections that define reality or not. Yeah. I see that with my kids. Like my kids will believe anything. They're six. Yeah. Right. And so there's this point where your brain I feel that there is this point and I think it really for me, I remember like this in my teenage years, like I would in in high school, you could give me something that'd be like, there are 400 people who run the world. Uh, And that was my early experience of the Internet was a lot of like conspiracy theory stuff. And you really do enjoy turning it over in your head and you kind of believe it for a day. Right. And then you're like, "Mm, no, that's not good. (laughs) I got that. I remember there was this thing called the holographic universe where it was like pasta will suddenly manifest and fall from the sky. And and a friend, a very smart friend recommended this to me. And I was like, oh, well, you know, if he thinks it's serious, I better check it out. And I like for a half hour it's like, oh, you can spontaneously manifest pasta from another dimension. And then I was like, no, you can't. You can't do that. (laughs) Right. But, but my brain at between like 15 to maybe 19 was willing to hold on
1: to that stuff and didn't it was very lightly held there's a playfulness of the fairy tale mind where i think we're supposed to be entertaining those ideas and exploring them I, I you know the way we work and the things that we do like especially as a writer
0: that's very risky right so i had to i made yes. decisions that i would be a far more kind of clinical human being as to how i approach the world Because I felt that
1: that would probably, just because I thought that would help me. But if
0: I didn't have that motivation, I might
1: enjoy believing all kinds of things. I grew up in a small town before the internet, and I still remember having access to information that just didn't seem right. I remember picking up Time magazine, having a, it was an old issue from the 70s that I found in the archives at the high school library, and had um, a collection of ideas around Hitler that were since debunked. Uh, It was around the Hitler diaries. Mm -hmm. And... I remember being briefly fascinated by this character, right? And I look back on that with kind of repulsion. I don't think I even saw the word gas chamber or anything like that. I, I, I don't. I don't remember exactly, but I remember like, oh, the cult of this guy looks really interesting. And for a week, I was like, kind of fascinated by this guy, well, you and trying and, to find more information about you
0: it. and David Bowie. Right? I mean, it's just sort of yeah. like it, bad ideas spread. You know, they get in there and but and sometimes it's playing. It is like, you know, what I remember is remember one of the British uh, royal family kids. I think it was Harry, like dressed as a Nazi. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. And you're just like, uh, I think, you know, there was the outrage in the press and there was sort of there's almost like a cultural formal reaction. Right. And then there's also everybody going like, what an idiot. Like, it's just <laughs> you're just like, yeah, of course, he would dress as a Nazi. He like that. That's exactly the sort of thing. An idiot like, 16-year-old or 18-year-old would do.
1: Yeah. And I feel like there's no, there's no good reaction to that. Like He's going to have a talking
0: to. Right. He knows. Right. Like, like, the minute that it hit the papers, they, it was like, uh, you know, Harry, come in here. <laughs> <laughs> like, and I literally called on the carpet, right? And just like.
1: Yeah. And may, I think we look at moments like the Parkland shooter uh, recently, and we look at that kid I don't actually even know his name offhand, no, and I'm, I'm actually kind of glad. I think that's a good yeah. thing that the media has done. You don't see his picture. You didn't see it for a long time. No, and actually, and
0: the the kids by the by being activists, the Parkland kids gave a narrative to cover that wasn't about the killer.
1: Yeah, it wasn't. I, that whole moment was fascinating, right? All of these kids suddenly appearing, like we we're talking about how silly and stupid we were when we were teenagers. You see these kids on TV or even just on Twitter. So articulate.
0: I know. But what worries me is they're just as silly and stupid in their off hours. Right. And like, (laughs) like if one of them goes and gets drunk at a party, that should over. It should That's a thing. It will be used to negate the points that they're making, like, which are fair and belong. Like those points should be listened to because they're victims of a crime. Right. And then, but they're going to be teenagers too. Yeah, and that like we're not good at that. That's 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 a part that like the media isn't going to know what to do with that. So anyway, this is a corporate podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Let me just interject for a second and tell you about what Postlight does. Now, normally there's two people doing the interview, so I'm just going to ask myself a few questions. Paul, what does Postlight do? Well, that's a good question. Oh boy, we do a lot of things. We build platforms and we build the products on top of them. Digital platforms, that is. Uh, You come to us with your complicated technology problems, legacy systems that you need to upgrade so that they can work across the web and mobile, things that are slow, big ideas that your large organization needs to get built, small startups that you want to make sure are going to run well. And we help you figure it out, get a plan, get it built, and get it out. We're as full stack as can be. So that's what Postlight does. Let's get back to Rex. Let me just open up a page, right? Cuz what people should know, so this book, the Encyclopedia of Mis- Misinformation, encyclopedia is actually accurate, not misinformation in that this is a set of entries alphabetically oriented or arranged. What's an entry I should be looking at?
1: I don't know, what are you interested in? Uh sports,
0: politics, society? I'm big uh, sports guy Rex. <laughs> <laughs> no, um here, here we go, here I'll we go. Me- no, no, I found a great page, page 64. You ready? Okay. 64 is the con man glossary.
1: What's going on here? There are moments where I decide, all right, this actually is an encyclopedia. And so I have to do some informative stuff. And there's a lot of like definition making here. So if you want to know what crisis actors are or dark propaganda or false flag operations, terms that are really in vogue right now, and Mm -hmm. you might not quite know what they are. I I try to set those definitions. So This is a practical
0: guide to the nightmare media escape in which we find ourselves.
1: I think it starts off by presenting itself like that, and then once you start getting into it, you go, "Oh, this guy's kind of trying to fiddle around well, with those sure, ideas." Sure. And so
0: this is a collection of weird little essays. It's and uh, an encyclopedia that defines things.
1: Yeah. It, it changes form from entry to entry there there mm-hmm. are things that look like straight up encyclopedia entries but there's also stuff that's like there's a couple of short stories in there mm-hmm. there's a play the, it ends with the platonic dialogue there's I lots lo- of there's lots of jokes I love this from the charts, a, tables
0: there's a book I found when I was 15 years old that I've never found anything quite like it and this book reminds me of it it's called the Domesday Dictionary and it's nobody knows about it it's just this oddity um, and it was like a a, a psychologist and somebody else, These two people got together and it's just uh, definitions of everything terrible. Like, you know, a lot of it's about nuclear war. Right. And and so and it's poetry and it's weird quotes and it's completely like your brain is just rattled after you read about five definitions. Right. And that's that's fun. And, you know.
1: Yeah. And so it's. I tell people it's barely a book. My publisher has said to stop saying that. But well, I you, love these because it's like, I might just read three or four pages, but I've had a wonderful experience with this book. And each entry ends with a, see, also, look at these entries. Yeah. And so you kind of can put together an interactive essay out of it. So if you're interested in, in false flag operations, you're like, oh, where does this little, it, it's, it really right, has so a wiki hole kind of a quality to it.
0: Crisis actors are real professional Thespians hired to play victims during fake military training exercises. However, in the hands of conspiracy theorists, crisis actors play a more sinister role. That's what we're talking about with the Parkland kids. Some of the conspiracy people have been talking about crisis actors. Yes, and uh, are saying that the kids that the kids who are standing up and talking about the Parkland shootings are crisis actors. And so, see also astroturfing. Clack.
1: What's clack? They're paid participants in an event. So. It came back into the news recently when a certain demagogue was coming down from an escalator in his hotel to announce his presidency. Mm-hmm. The the people that were organized to cheer for him was a clack. It, it is an actual uh, okay. pa- paid audiences.
0: So um, fall- you learned something. I like, did. This the- I really did. Clack. Uh, false flag operation, internet troll. We know what those are, but it's good that people actually have a resource. Yes, LARP, which is a wonderful term. Yes. Live action role-playing game. Right.
1: Yeah. And there's a good indication of like, it it moves around between like super serious, mm-hmm. like, oh, fla- false flag operations, but also like cosplay is in there. Oh, and- see, I'm,
0: now I'm getting into it though, because you've got the method,
1: Periodolia? Yeah, periodolia is the, the innate ability of humans to recognize patterns, oftentimes in ways that they shouldn't. So, for instance, seeing the face of Jesus uh, inside of a potato. Mm-hmm. Periodolia is, is what scientists call that.
0: We've got the Rosenham effect, sock puppet, and Trojan horse. All
1: right, so it goes pretty deep. I think maybe my favorite entry is flat earth theory. And the reason I like that one so much is there is a, a surge right now going on where we believe that there are people out there who f- actually think the world is flat. And this goes to something we were talking about earlier. How much do they really believe that? I don't know. I mean,
0: it's, it's also – it's such good press. Yes. And then there's these products like the Flat Earth like, Globe or whatever. It's not a right. globe. It's a map. Yes. <laughs> but like, yeah, it does feel – the whole th- thing feels put on.
1: Yeah, and so I could I go back and forth in writing these entries in a way like, all right, do I have to like teach people that the earth is round and that sounds boring. No one wants to read that. But there are some examples where okay, we got to set our our facts straight here. One entry that's really serious is the anti-vaxxers one or like that's just annoying. I got yeah. I got to lay this out here. But um the flat earth one, I take this tact that, well, Let's look at this a little bit deeper. Is there actually a whole bunch of people historically who have said the Earth is flat? And when you look at it, because that's that's sort of what we were taught in high school, was this idea that Columbus didn't know it was flat until he circled around the world, and that's been mostly corrected, I think. But it still exists out there that people in the Middle Ages thought that the Earth was flat, sure. and it turns out that's not really true. It's tr- okay, okay, and that and that was a it was actually a thing that was invented by people, scientists and and thinkers, intellectuals, invented in the 19th century as a method to get people to think more critically about About the past. So that whole childhood myth of like Columbus. Plato knew that the earth was round. Ptolemy knew the earth was round. Dante knew the earth was round because he he put uh, uh, the inferno in the center of, of the planet and he had pictures of people coming out the other side. Thomas Aquinas knew the earth was round. So I look at a lot of that kind of stuff too. Like what are the moments that we foist our our biases about thinking onto the.
0: Past. So when Columbus set sail, he knew it was around. I mean, what the hell was that? I remember they told us like Columbus didn't know. Well, he thought was he some... was,
1: he was thought he was getting to, to the West Indies. Or he, be,
0: he believed because he like held up an orange. You know, I think as I'm saying this, I may not know what I'm talking about. <laughs> you should read the book. <laughs> I really should. It's really, good. They got you. You're, you're on. You're on brand message, Max. You're doing good. All right. So let's let's go back to the conmen for one sec. Right.
1: Yeah, and it, that entry is it's all about right. the language of conmen and, and about how they've developed their own vocabulary and this little lexicon that they all use amongst themselves. You see it in the orange movies or Orange Eleven, right. Orange Twelve, Can we skip ahead to
0: page ninety? All right. Because here we learn that Haagen-Dazs is from the Bronx. <laughs> we also learn that Aubon Pond is from Boston. That is almost more disappointing. Right. So, this dazs
1: with all that, with the umlaut and all, you're like, yeah, no, they're trying too hard. That makes sense. So, this section is about how marketers will invent terms and brands that sound like they're from some place, but really are not from there. So, uh, Pret-de-manger, sounds French, of course, invented in London. Um, umami sounds Japanese, of course, mm-hmm. but is, of course, an L.A. product. Uh, and then the, the page ends with Motley Crue, which sounds like it's old English. Again, um <laughs> right? Let me start a couple of lots in.
0: All right, so you're researching this thing. What blew your mind? What made you go, oh, my God, I can't believe I believed
1: that? So have you heard that iron is readily Found in spinach, and then then you heard the story that well that's actually not true, Mm -hmm. and then there was a a story that had been passed around for a long time for that skeptics really enjoyed scientifically skeptically minded people really enjoyed that there was an error made in the hundred years ago in looking at the analysis of spinach and it led to this myth that spinach had iron and in fact there have been It was a decimal place error. It had been two spaces to the left, and for forever we have believed that spinach has iron, and we don't. So this is an idea that had been spread around, and it's supposed to encourage skepticism. And it turns out, in fact, that whole story is in fact a myth. Of course, spinach has iron, Mm -hmm. and this idea had been passed around. And I put it in the context in the book of super myths: these ideas that people. Scientists especially propagate so that they can encourage skeptical thinking and in fact they are themselves myths. And so it's about scientists are also capable of inventing these things. What can we believe? I I think that's that's a hard question in these times, right? We're being told to encourage media literacy constantly. And, uh, and we're asking kids to be more critical about their thinking and everything. And I, I'm becoming deeply suspicious that those kids are already deeply skeptical of their information. And I don't think they need to be told anymore that everything is up for grabs because it feels like we're entering a moment where every potential fact is a debatable fact.
0: It does feel that way. I mean, it's, it's a peculiar time. I've always felt that like, I wish we would teach middle schoolers how to make commercials. Right. Just get them the literacy to to create and make this stuff so that it doesn't have any secret power over them.
1: Yeah, I think a lot of the media literacy movement is really looking at how stuff is created. There's an alternative, uh, a counter to that idea, though, which is like kids already get this stuff. They're making memes constantly. True. Um, the Parkland shooters kids uh, have sort of proven that they're very savvy. At least these specific kids are very savvy with media creation and even gaming news cycles. So what ultimately are we, how do we get kids to think more critically about the information they receive while still believing in some of the basic courses of history is, I think, like a big question right now. There's no answer, right? Well, Corey Doctorow had an essay recently. He talked about this idea of,, um, it's not it's not a time of facts versus opinions. It's not about what we think. It's about how we think. And I think that that's right. I think we should be teaching the idea that there are not just opposing viewpoints, not just CNN versus Fox, not just Maddow versus Hannity, that instead we should try to think about how other people are coming to the conclusions that they're coming to. And it's not a matter of what, it's a matter of how. And... uh, I think that there's a lesson in there about media literacy for kids, and that we we work toward letting them understand systems of thought, not present everything as just like opposition. Because like media the media literacy movement starts with saying, well, take a look at Breitbart and it's backed by Bannon and who is backed by Mercer, and all of these people. Are bad, but look at this counter over here. You have the Washington Post that's backed by Bezos. And then it leads to some sort of moral equivalency among amongst people that these two things are equal in some way. And I think that that's that that's the the effect that's happening right now.
0: I think there's another thing, which going back to some of the things we were talking about earlier, people, first of all, we consume so much media, so much mm-hmm. all day, right? Like it's very easy to have we're on Twitter or we're digitally connected, there's us. And then there's people who are kind of have the TV on in the background and we're watching like, you know, CNN or, or Fox all day. And people are willing to kind of lightly hold and connect to all kinds of ideas as they suck media down their media holes in their brains. Right. And like part of the literacy is giving people the credit as discerning consumers who accept and reject the things that they're hearing and that some of the things that we're going like, oh man, Infowars, Alex Jones, that's just, that thread has always been there. It's, he didn't, Alex Jones did not invent the kind of conspiracy thinking that he promotes. That's been there for a hundred plus years. Mm -hmm. It's kind of the handmaiden of the rest of the media. It's always there. And he just tapped into it and is doing it very well right now. Mm -hmm. And people are. You know, absorbing that, taking it in, rejecting some, having some, but it's it's not this simple thing where people are sitting at home just soaking up bad ideas.
1: Yeah, and i th- I think ultimately what we need to encourage is people on the left and the right that they they look at different sources, not so that they can see like other opinions necessarily. Like i have I have friends in New York who just refuse to ever look at the front page of Breitbart sure. or refuse to ever turn on Hannity. And they'll ask me why I choose to do that. Every night, I try to turn on Tucker Carlson for at least five minutes, and it's not—I know—I
0: would it, take Hannity or Carl, Carlson is. My oof. wife walks out of the room when it happens. Yeah, it's, um, he's just—I mean, Hannity's at least
1: entertaining, in a, and you know. and my my reasoning isn't that I want to have like my knowledge tested or anything like that. I'm pretty firm on my beliefs. Yeah. it's more like I want to understand their ways of thinking, mm-hmm. and I think that that's important that we we teach. Um, kind of methodologies mm-hmm. and that learning is systems more than it is um, facts. because that was the old way of teaching that history is this chronology of events and you memorize these things. And instead, if we look toward um, frames of ways of understanding, I think that that gets us a long way toward uh, some of the traps we've fallen into. So look,
0: let's let's tell the people about the book. The Encyclopedia of Misinformation, mm-hmm. a compendium of imitation spoofs, delusions, simulations, counterfeits, imposters, illusions, confabulations, skullduggery, fraud, pseudoscience, propaganda, hoaxes, flimflam, flam pranks, hornswoggle, conspiracies, and miscellaneous fakery. It's by Rex Sorgatz, It's published by Abrams Image. So you can buy this book, I'm assuming, on Amazon.
1: Amazon. Buy it everywhere at your local store. It'll be, uh, I I think it's getting a a placement at Barnes & Noble. So
0: Are they going to be able to do a digital version? It's very encyclopedia-y.
1: Yeah, there there is a um, Kindle version of it. All right. All right. Well, that's it.
0: That's all. Everyone has to buy your book. That's how this ends. Thank you. Don't be deceived. Well, look, I have a copy of this book and it is pretty cool. It's very satisfying. It's got a lot of color on the cover, got a lot of images got a lot of pictures got a lot of words all the things that good books have but it's also a good book and rex is a good writer and it's about a very very relevant topic and who knows could be a classic you should go get a copy you should go have one in your hands right now you should have already ordered it it's almost too late but not too late get a book get the encyclopedia of misinformation now I'm Paul Ford, co-founder of Postlight. Postlight is our company here and we build web platforms. But honestly, we're just happy you're out there listening. Anything you need, just let us know. Hello at postlight.com.